Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and hopefully you've heard an episode of this podcast before and know what it's about. If not, then this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they love and would like to keep safe, and one thing that they would like to be rid of. We then banish that from their life by burying it deep in the ground. My guest telling me these little secrets from their past in this episode is the record-breaking and award-winning West End and Broadway performer and recording artist John Owen Jones, who was voted the best ever Jean Valjean in Les Miserables by fans of the show worldwide. He's still the youngest actor ever to have played the role. He's also played the Phantom in Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera more than 2,000 times, more than any actor in the show's long West End history. John has released six solo albums, including his latest, Spotlight, which featured the City of Prague Philharmonic. I spoke to John back in the heady days when Covid was merely a rumour. I'm delighted that you can finally hear this wonderful, sweet, funny man and his stories. During our conversation, he spoke with great passion about both his parents, who still lived in Berryport in South Wales. Very sadly, since this episode was recorded, both John's parents have passed away. I hope this recording stands as a tribute to the obvious deep love that John has for both of them. I've had so much trouble thinking about what would go in where. I'm finding it very difficult. I'm quite an easygoing guy, generally. I remember when I was in drama school, we had a class with this... Um, what would you call a drama teacher that's kind of like, um, kind of on the edge, you know, one of those ones that, the theatre of cruelty, that kind of thing. Right? Mm, avant-garde. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, right, I want you to think of something now that you really hate. 
And I really want you to think of that. And we're sitting in the room, and I don't want to hear anything. So I, I could not think of anything I hated, because I understand there's no black and white, right? Yeah. And she was like, um, well, think of something. Well, I don't know, shell suits. And that's what it became. And so this whole class became about why I hated shell suits. I'm like, I just picked it arbitrarily out of the air. It's just I don't really like the look of them. You know, that's it. And I was like... And that is why I, I, I was finding it really hard to find something to put in something I wanted to get rid of. Yeah. It's really hard. You know, there's a little bit of good and bad in everything. I mean, you could say what you want about Hitler, <laughs> but he had, he, you know, was, you know was a, he had lots of positive things as well. He was very tidy. Yes, indeed. Yeah, he was a vegetarian, famously. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. But, um, but no, obviously, he, he would go in. And then also, the good stuff... How many people would say, oh, the birth of my child, or blah, blah, blah. Mm. Everyone says it. And um, I'm going to, hopefully, my wife won't listen to this, so I could say something that isn't that. <laughs> you know, so it was, I found it quite difficult. I found yeah. it quite difficult. When did we actually first meet? Can you remember? We first met, I think, doing um, a workshop, It was a workshop, wasn't it? was it? a workshop for a musical. Oh, yeah. what's the music? Was it Sister Act? No. No, it was, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful. It's life. It's a wonderful life, Steve Brown. Yeah, yes, that's in which right. You yeah. were fantastic. Oh well, I, yeah. I sometimes those songs still pop into my head. What happened to that show? Did it have a life? I we did remember. do it. I went on and did it. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. So, we just uh, we all agreed to do it as long as you weren't in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's uh, what a great way to start the podcast. Yeah, make me feel bad. <laughs> that's because you were too bloody good. That's why <laughs> it was great fun though, wasn't it, Steve? Brown wrote it, it was yeah. Harry Hill's MD, and, and uh, of course he's Glenn Ponder. Yes. Uh, in Alan Partridge, and uh, I, I could not remember where it was. I knew it was something like that. Yeah, that's but what yeah, it was. It's a wonderful life, and we went to the Riverside Studios. And then you insisted on me coming to see you do Phantom and things like that. <laughs> I said, I've never seen it. Wow. Well, so, I mean, it was a bizarre thing. I think your expression was, was what the fuck? <laughs> It probably was, yeah. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? You could then? swear. Yeah, well, it's, look, I, I'd never seen Cats. It ran for, what, 25 years, wasn't it? Yeah. And I'd never seen it. So, I, you know, it, that's why these shows are still running. Phantom, Les Mis, Lion King. They're People, waiting for you to turn up. They're, yeah, they're waiting for me to buy a ticket and then they'll close. <laughs> no, they, um, there's audiences still out there. Because you know, yeah. there's only a limited amount of seats per night, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, if anybody knows the West End, you do. <laughs> well, how many years have you spent in the, um, playing the lead role in the West End? It's extraordinary. Well, I mean, we think now, so am I 48? No, I'm 49 this year. And yeah. uh, I've been working in leading roles for 23 years, so I was 26 playing Jean Valjean for the first time. Is, that, is it right that, that you were the youngest Jean Valjean? Yeah, yeah, is the youngest. Is still the case? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Wow. Um, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I don't really care about, that no. kind of thing, but people like to put a little tag on you and say, oh, you are this or you are that. Yes. In a um, way, you'd rather than being the youngest, you'd rather they said you were the best. Yes, yeah, but I mean, I, I would like to hear Cameron Mackintosh or Claude Michel Schoenberg or someone say that, but uh, they might think it, but they can't say it. So that's what I convinced myself anyway. But, you know, I've had a very happy relationship um, with Cameron's people and Lloyd Webber and, uh, you know, I've done, you know, two of the biggest roles in the West End for years. Yes. So and I've, last summer I was doing Les Mis again um, with Michael Ball and Matt Lucas and um, Alfie Bow, and we're doing a concert version of the show. So it's incredible mm. that. Uh, in fact, this is one of my 
One of my first things, actually. Oh, right, yeah. great. So you're going to put this in the time Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, well, so let's go then. Well, let's, let's go into the very first thing I would like to put in a time capsule is um, my wife, um, Teresa. Uh, we've been married for tw- nearly 21 years. And we met while she was working on Les Mis at the Palace Theatre in 1995. What's it, 94. 95, 95. <laughs> Sorry, I came out of drama school in 94. Then I went and worked up in Leeds, West Yorkshire Playhouse, Harrogate Theatre, then Les Mis in 95. Yeah, so it was 95. And then I went to the National. I, in fact, the first uh, year and a half at a drama school, I worked solidly and I didn't have an agent. And as soon as I signed with an agent when I was at the National, I didn't work for six months. Uh, <laughs> There's that's, a lesson uh, yes, for a young actor. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Anyway, so Terry and I, uh, Teresa and I met backstage while um, I was working on Limbis and I was in the ensemble and she was a dresser. And uh, the story goes is that uh, up in the wardrobe department on the fourth floor at the Palace Theatre, it's, it's different backstage now because the, the show's moved to the, the Queen's and then the Gilgood and now back to the Queen's. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, as a little side note, I've played Valjean in every theatre it's ever been in in London. So uh, the Barbican I did in 2010, the Queen's, the Gielgud and the Palace. So, and a concert version of The Mermaid and a kind of played Valjean at the O2. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's been very good to me, um, which is why I look so old now. Anyway, Teresa and I met backstage after I saw a picture of her on the wall up in the wardrobe department where everyone who worked there had a little kind of Polaroid. And I saw this picture of this girl and I said to the wardrobe mistress, who is that? I mean, she is, oh my God, she's gorgeous. So oh, that's Teresa, she just works here sometimes. Oh, and then jokingly I said, I'm going to marry her one day. And then I walked off, didn't think anything of it. And then she came into work and I just, I, she walked past me and I just, I just stopped in my tracks. I could not believe this beautiful woman was in this building with me. So I asked her out and we went out together for a while and then, I left Les Mis and I worked around the country a bit. Then I came back into London um, and I was doing, I was understudying Valjean. And uh, I got the call to go on for Valjean for the first time. And it was a last minute thing and I wasn't really ready. And um, this is the, the moment I want to put in is directly after the first time I ever went on as Valjean, mm. which as you can imagine, it's a huge role and there's a lot of um, expectations stacked up against you as a performer when you go on for the first time because you've got everyone in the building who knows you, watching you. I mean, God, you know, what are you going to be like? And then you have the audience who have an expectation of the show. So basically, she came to my dressing room after the show and she was in floods of tears and she was, like, really proud of me. And, I, you know, and she was a fairly new girlfriend, do you know what I mean? So, and I kind of knew she was the one for me, but that was the moment that cemented it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I want to spend my life with you because she was like, she cared so much about what I did, you know? And that, that meant a lot to me, you know? So, because yeah. actually she's not an actress. I mean, she's a, a school teacher. She teaches in a school on the corner. She was training to be a teacher when she was working there. And, um, you know, she was just paying her way through university by, by working as a dresser. Um, so then she ended up dressing me as Valjean, which didn't last too long because she did have to say to me at one point, look, I can't pick your pants up and your socks up in work as well as at home. So I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> so, um, so, and we agreed that it was probably for the best that she didn't dress me. So that is the moment I want to put in, that first moment where my wife, who wasn't my wife then, but my wife now, saw me play a role that I'd always wanted to play. It was a dream of mine to play Vajon, and she mm. was there at the very beginning. 
and the joy it brought her, you know, the tears, the mascara running down her face, that, that is a moment I want to keep. The great thing about that is that she's not a lovey. No, not at all. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, she's a proper school teacher. She's a brilliant school teacher. Um, and, you know, we enjoy the theatre and stuff. Uh, and she gets it and she, she understands how bonkers the business is. You know, I'm sure you know what I mean by this, but sometimes you get a call at five o'clock, we need someone to come and do this tonight, and off you go. And then that's your plans ruined for the night, or you, or you can't book holidays in advance mm-hmm. because, I mean, she's a school teacher, we have to go on school holidays, and often we can't because, I mean, I'm kind of waiting to hear about a job next year, a job that might take me through to 2022, but it won't start till the end of this year. And then if that happens, then we can't book any holidays for next year or just in case. Mm. And it's the irony of this business is, and she understands it, is that you might have money coming in, but you, you can't spend it because you're working. It's that weird thing because yes. she can't go on holiday without me. I don't want to go without her. But I end up travelling a lot anyway, so half the time I just want to stay at home. Mm. So she kind of gets caught in the middle. But uh, she's very understanding, very wonderful. Um, and the moment you, said, you stop working, you don't want to spend the money just in case you don't get any other work. Oh, no, I don't care about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it used to drive my dad mental. My dad used to drive him mental. That I was just like, you know, buy, like, I mean, you know, I gave you a nice cup of coffee this morning. That coffee machine cost me 500 quid. Whoa. You know, and it's like, it's like, but I really like coffee. Yeah. So, and I was like, well, you know what, I learned that back somewhere down the line, you know. But in the meantime, I want nice cups of coffee. And to explain something like that to my dad, who's a butcher from Burryport in Wales, where I'm from, he would go and buy coffee every day at a coffee shop. But I can, you know, but he would spend more than that in a year. So yeah. trying to explain that to him. Anyway. You were understudying the part of the time. Yes. And then did you eventually take over from the person you were understudying? Yes, I did. Well, what happened was um, when I was very first in the show, uh, there was a guy called Phil Cavill. Um, it's very, the politics of the Western can be very confusing sometimes. So a role like for Jean Valjean is very taxing and it never traditionally had what they call an alternate. So by someone would come in and do two nights a week. Now, mm-hmm. One of the first alternates in the West End was Sarah Brightman. She had an alternate for Christine when she was playing Phantom of the Opera. Uh, a wonderful performer called Claire Moore. Absolutely brilliant. And she did two a week. So, because Sarah was, you know, like finding it hard to sing that role eight times a week. And it's always been like that. Ever since that show opened, Christine has always had an alternate. Now, Valjean never did. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. I think it's more t- to do with Con Wilkinson never wanting one. Um, so, eventually, at some point, some actor needed one. And it was a guy called Dudu Fisher, who was this big Israeli musical theatre star, but he didn't do the Sabbaths, he didn't do Friday night, and he didn't do Saturday afternoon. So um, so when he when he was in work, it was absolutely rammed, right? Because like, every Jewish person in London came to see him, right? He's that, that famous. <laughs> but when he wasn't there, I mean, you, you noticed a drop-off in sales, but they put an alternate on called Jeff Layton. Another a great Valjean, great Valjean. So eventually he, uh, Dudu left, and then Jeff took over six times a week, but he needed an alternate as well. So then they brought Phil Cavill back. And Phil Cavill was doing two a week. It's a great job being an alternate, because, I mean, you're on the end of the phone. I've done it myself. Um, but come four o'clock, that's it, you're free. Hmm. And you still get paid, you know. And you get paid more for being in the show. But... You know, the fact that you get a responsibility fee for being at home watching the telly is just wonderful. You know, I mean, what, what a joy, what a job. Um, at four o'clock, you go to the pub. Yes, exactly, yeah. 
Uh, and so anyway, Phil Cavill was doing two a week, Jeff was doing six, and I was an understudy. So um, if Jeff went off or Phil went off and neither Jeff nor Phil could cover for each other, I would go on. And there was also another understudy beneath me. So, you know, there was layers because, I mean, it's so expensive to cancel a show. There's so many complicated financial things to consider um, that they don't ever want to cancel. So that's why they have understudy after understudy after understudy. Anyway, Phil Cavill, God bless him, had a horrendous motorcycle accident uh, on the Sunday night. And I was called on the Monday morning to go on for him on the Monday night. Now, he has recovered since, but, you know, his foot was practically severed. And mm. so I knew that I was stepping up to the plate for that night. And then that was the night that Cameron McIntosh happened to be in watching the show. And he said, oh, well, let's give him the alternate permanently until Phil's back. And Phil wasn't going to be back for like a year, two years. I mean, he's going to have to walk, learn to walk again, you know. Wow. So I ended up moving up to the plate. And then um, eventually Cameron McIntosh said, well, you're reliable and you can do the job. So... I'll move you up to do eight a week. So I was like, yeah, great. And I've never looked back. But no. uh, when I first went on as an alternate, I was 26. So, <laughs> which is why, I mean, it was too young. But when you get offered an opportunity like that, you don't you don't shut the door on it. You know, you, you walk straight through no. and grab it with both hands, you know. And, and the I, great thing is now that you have to do the makeup the other way around. <laughs> Oh, you're so charming. I can't believe I let you into my house. <laughs> um, yeah, there is, there is that thing. When I was first started at 26, I had so many lines and wrinkles painted on my face it was ridiculous and now i don't have to do any of that <laughs> at all at all in fact i have to try and cover up some of the wrinkles because they're like you look too old from oh, from no. the back of the auditorium there i remember i went to see um phantom of the opera in uh, new york once and um um they have run of show contracts in new york i don't know if you know this but in london it's um six months or a year, an actor signs on for a role for six months and then the producers try to get rid of him or they ask him to extend. Mm. Now, in New York, for a long time, there was a run of show contracts. So however long a show ran, you could stay in that show. And so there were actors who would stay in Phantom of the Opera for 30, 33 years. Yeah. But there was a girl playing Meg who was supposed to be like 14 um, like a, a little ballet girl, and she was in her 40s. And I was sitting at the back of the auditorium going, how old is she? I, that's like 300 feet away. I could see how old she was, and, you know, she was having trouble bending over and everything. It's like, that's ridiculous. That so, is. yeah. So, uh, But luckily, um, uh, when I first did Valjean at 26, I had to concentrate on the old man acting and ageing and, you know, putting a stoop in or, you know, moving a bit more slowly, and I would have to do any of that. It did just comes naturally. Did you ever have one of those moments? Because I have a friend who auditioned for Aspects of Love mm -hmm. and he auditioned several times and every time they got him to sing that song, yeah. Love Changes Everything, yeah. and hit the big note at the end, which he could do. Mm -hmm. You've got to tell me who that is. His name's Mark Jeffries. I know who Mark Jeffries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when they finally offered him the job, he turned it down because he just said, I can't bear the pressure of having of that, to do yeah. that every night. Mm. Well, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting because that meant then that probably isn't in his voice, mm. that he would have to work hard to get it. Um, and that's one of the things that I found playing a role like Valjean, which goes right at the top and right down the, in the boots, you know, the, the range is ridiculous. And it's not just the range, it's the quality of the sound you have to produce as well. It has to be slightly operatic and then slightly rocky and then like you have to sing like a little nightingale, light, fluffy little sound. Incredibly challenging vocally. And if it isn't in your voice, you're going to struggle. And yeah. I, I've always found it to be just right in my voice. My voice mm. suits that role. 
So I used to struggle in Phantom when I played Phantom. I've done Phantom um, up until very recently. I did it more times in the UK than anyone else. But Phantom is is one of those things where it's not really in my voice. I had to work it into my voice. I had to do exercises to kind of stretch it to make it a bit lower so I could drop my voice down bottom. I had to learn how to scream mm. on pitch, which a lot of actors can't do. Um, and usually actors who play that role within like four uh, weeks of going on, um, they're off sick. Their voice is gone. And it happened to me. So and that's a sign that, that you've had to, that it's not in your voice. Yeah. And when you look at someone like, let's say, Robert Plant or John Bon Jovi or any rock star you care to mention, you can sing three hours of that music a night, like three or four times a week, all around the world, travelling, and that's with all the drugs and all the alcohol <laughs> and the smoking and the partying. And they, they never go off sick. They, they never miss shouts because it must simply be because they physically find it no problem. You know, with them, it's a lot of that stuff is written for their voices, but... It feels like to me, you know, Valjean was written for my voice. It's kind of mm. right there, you know, so I'm very lucky about that. You know? Brilliant. Yeah. Well, we should put that lovely moment for your wife or your future wife at the pit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, future wife then, current wife now. Yes. I don't anticipate having a different one at any point. Uh, and you, you call never... Teresa Terry? Terry, yeah, actually I call her Tell. Tell. Yeah, her dad used to call her Tell as a joke, so now I call her Tell. <laughs> yeah. You've got this lovely moment where Tell comes in and, and shows genuine emotion. Yeah, Because so many yeah. times in those situations, people will come in and you oh, don't quite believe yeah, it. Yeah, And that yeah. convinces you yeah. that this is the woman for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I knew, well, one of the first things I knew about her was when she, she was very shy and demure. And a lot of people think that that could be standoffishness, maybe a bit rude, but she's just very quiet person. She's, you know, the longer we've been together, the more outgoing she's become because she has to be because I'm I'm an actor darling and <laughs> I'm noisy and loud and then when I go to a party and she's with me she has to kind of end up matching my energy so she's become uh, less quiet as years gone on but when we first met that was also enormously attractive to me is that the fact that she was not an actress and not that kind of you know I, I mean I knew I'd get mirror time you know, when I was at home, I knew I'd be able to get some mirror time. You wouldn't get that with an actress or, or an actor boyfriend, you know. No. But she um, uh, she was very quiet. I was like, oh, she's so lovely and quiet and demure and such a little princess. And then uh, we got in her car and we drove somewhere and she turned into a road rage monster. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is the woman for me. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, there's depth there. Yeah, and, uh, But that uh, that moment when she, she walked into my dressing room was definitely the one that, you know, that encapsulated... Uh, everything I thought about her, I, I wanted her to be. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Without, like, she was my ideal woman. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll put it in the time capsule. She's also you. got incredible hair, uh, <laughs> which is something I love as well. So. <laughs> that goes in with her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. So let's move on to your second item. My second item. My second item will be a smell. Um, which is an odd thing to think about, but um, I grew up in a butcher shop in South Wales, and I, my dad was a master butcher, my brother's a trained butcher, my mother worked in the butcher shop, my grandfather worked in the butcher shop. So as a, in the old days, now I don't know if you ever went to a butcher shop when you were younger, but um, they used to cover the floor with sawdust mm -hmm. to catch any bits of meat uh, or blood or anything and make the floor not slippery. Um, so it was a traditional thing. So you'd have like big bins of sawdust out the back of the shop. And then in the morning, you would sprinkle the sawdust out and then in the evening, you'd sweep it up and then you'd mop the floor. Now, uh, I think European ruling changed 
health and safety, so you couldn't put sawdust down anymore. Um, I think there were too many cases of butchers dropping pork chops in it and then just brushing the sawdust <laughs> off and selling it, right? Um, but it was their answer, health and safety thing. And um, then eventually got rid of it, and it made so much more work for us in the shop because we had to clean two or three times a day, you know. And um, But anyway, the, the thing I want to put in is the smell of sawdust. Um, it was an amazing thing. Every time I would come, because we used to live, my parents still live above the shop, um, uh, Elk and Johnson Sons, family butchers. Uh, and uh, so I would go down after school and help out in the shop. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, if we needed to be out, be working in the shop all day. And Christmas time, crazy busy. So the butcher, there's one butcher thing I loved, and that was just I would before I would go into work, I would just go into the the sawdust, take the lid off the bin, and just take a handful of sawdust and sniff it because the smell was so comforting. It's weird, you know. Some people like the smell of petrol, don't they, and things like that. But sawdust, um, and even now when I smell it now, it brings back amazing memories. So if I like, if I'm in B and Q, for example, or any other, you know, other places like that are available. Other DIY stores are available, and they're they're <laughs> cutting wood. I will find myself wandering down to that end of the store and smelling it. Yeah, isn't that weird, isn't it? No, it's lovely. Yeah. It's and lovely. It's, it's I know just, that smell because, yeah. uh, strangely enough, when I was at school, I was put in charge of the pets. But once a week, I was allowed to take a double period off and go and collect sawdust for the animals. So I would go to the wood mill and collect the sawdust. Oh, wow, that sounds like a dream it for was, me. It was a really... Yeah. So it, not only did you get, you'd get to miss maths, <laughs> but you went in and collected sawdust. So I know exactly what that smell is. It's gorgeous. Ah, and, so, and also maths. I hated maths. There we are. Yeah. Oh, you should have gone to my school. You should have gone to my school. So now you've mentioned it, that really does throw me back as well. Mm. I can remember that smell in a butcher's shop. Yeah. And it would never be in the public area, only behind the scenes. Mm. So, um, but then I've been to bars and, and barbecue joints in America and they've got sawdust on the floor. It's kind of like that, that, that weird thing. And I, I remember walking into this one in um, Rochester and I was doing a gig there for a, um, a, a Welsh society. They have like a, every year there's a the North American Festival of Wales happens every year in a different city. And uh, I, I got the one that was in the middle of nowhere. And so it's often Welsh <laughs> friends of mine are going, oh, yeah, I'm doing this, uh, the, the festival. Uh, where did you go? Uh, oh, Washington. What about you? Chicago. What about you? LA. Where did you go? Rochester, upstate New York. Where's that? <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it was like a seven-hour drive from New York. So um, me and my musical director, who's from Swansea, a guy called John Quirk, brilliant guy, we, uh, we were staying in this hotel in Rochester and um, uh, we passed this... Um, barbecue joint you saw a big dinosaur barbecue or something it was called I thought, well, you've got to go there haven't you and like dinosaurs i mean you've got a massive ribs so like fred flintstone so um <laughs> so then we thought we left the hotel we walked around the corner and then there was like about 20 hell's angels outside right and, that, and they were all just parked there and we're like and john was like oh, i don't think we want to go in there man i thought are you joking of course we do this is going to be like an, a clint eastwood film like every which way but loose or something so <laughs> so we went in and there was like it was like literally there was like people just swigging Jack Daniels out of the bottle and um, spitting on the floor and there was sawdust everywhere and there was a rock band playing, you know, and it was like one of those, and they were behind a cage. No. Yeah, so like that thing in the Blues Brothers, you oh, remember wow, that? Yeah. yeah, I do. And uh, I was like, this is amazing. I was like, are you sure you want to go? Yeah, come on, come on, let's get a beer, let's get some food. The barbecue stuff was brilliant. The I love rock music, 
so I was enjoying that. I was I loved the thrill of the danger because I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie as well. And the barbecue food was amazing. And I got the smell of sawdust. So I was in heaven. Perfect. Yeah. So sawdust, yeah, yeah, which leads into the next one. Sawdust, okay. Well, we yeah. put sawdust, a great big barrel of sawdust. Yeah. Put it in the in the time capsule yeah. for you. And so what's next? I love John Owen Jones. We'll be back with him in a moment, but we have to take a short break now for some adverts. See you in a min. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, let's get straight back to John Owen Jones and find out what else he put in his time capsule. Uh, so next, um, Sawdust led us on to the you know the gigs with the wire in front of it and then you know audiences throwing things Mm -hmm. um so i'd like to put my next thing would be the 1988 donnington monsters of rock festival um (laughs) which is uh, i was 16 uh i'd seen one live gig before that so i'd like to put the 1988 donnington monsters of rock festival in because um i just got into heavy rock music that summer thanks to Bon Jovi and Europe and the Final Countdown and Living on a Prayer and all that stuff. And then Iron Maiden brought out their seminal 1988 album, one of my favourite albums of all time, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. I'm sure you know it very well. <laughs> so, well uh, I know the sixth son. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it's... Um, uh, it's a shame because if you've got if you've got to know the sense son, you'd, you'd you'd be a heavy metalhead like me. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so they were putting on this huge gig at Donington in in the middle of the racetrack, and it'd be running for like ten years. The festival. Um, there's a sad story to add to this actually, because um, Guns and Roses are also playing there. It was the lineup was basically Halloween, a German speed metal band, brilliant, and they were on at like ten o'clock in the morning, right, playing ridiculously fast, heavy, loud music with the world's <laughs> highest voice, uh, and then Megadeth, Guns and Roses, uh, David Lee Roth, Kiss, um, and then Iron Maiden were headlining. But Kiss could be anybody, couldn't they? Just well, no, they, these, uh, well, that's interesting. You should say that because this is when they had no makeup. They ah. went through a non-makeup phase. So Kiss, for any of your listeners who don't know who they are, huge global rock act, which black and white makeup that look like monsters or spacemen. Uh, I've seen them live loads of times. And now Paul Stanley, the lead singer, 
um, I talk to him regularly on Twitter because he used to be Phantom once. It's a weird world, isn't it? Oh, yeah. my God, so, that is weird. So, um, and he played Phantom in Toronto. And um, I remember I went to see them in London last year. This is a long, long-winded story to get yeah, around to your seventh son of a seventh son thing. Um, I went to see them in London on their latest tour, The End of the Road. And uh, I said to my kids when they were younger, you know, I want you to see certain bands, you know, before they get too old. ACDC, Kiss, Iron Maiden, Metallica. My son and I went to see Metallica, still one of the best gigs I've ever seen. That was in the O2. Kiss were in the O2 last year. My kids didn't get it at all. They thought, what is this? These these guys are like in their 60s and their makeup, wearing high heels and stuff. Yeah, but it's like they are so ridiculously good at what they do. They are so rock and roll because they don't care what anyone thinks. They do whatever the hell they want. Anyway, Paul Stanley, I messaged him on Twitter, a private message saying, oh, um, just so you know, we were at the show tonight and it was absolutely mind-blowingly brilliant, fantastic, well done. We had a brilliant time. Thank you. That was all I wanted to say. Thank you to him, right? And then he came back and said, oh, you should have said I would have got you backstage. It's like, I've never met the guy, wow. right? I said, oh, that's, that's incredibly generous, but too late. But thank you so much for the offer. Maybe next time, dot, dot, dot. I said, tell you what, what's your address? I said, uh, and I give him my address. And then a big box arrived full of merchandise. Wow. Never met the guy. And um, I told him my kids loved the show. My wife and I loved the show. And he just wanted to give something back to me for that. So, yeah, incredibly lovely. Um, but the whole experience of going to a festival and and seeing bands like Kiss, Dave Lee Roth and proper showmen, you know, and, and Iron Maiden uh, was formative, really, um, because I understood I was 16. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do for a living. I knew I kind of wanted to do something in show business theatrically or maybe in a band or maybe just an actor. I don't know. And the theatricality of this show kind of cemented for me what I wanted to do. So, I mean, I loved Sondheim and I loved musical theatre, but I also really loved rock music. So, mm. And in fact, I used to do this thing when I was playing Phantom. I used to, well, the makeup took 45 minutes to an hour, so I'd put heavy metal on every night. And I used to drive the team working with me mental, right? And uh, in fact, it was so loud sometimes that the audience could hear it. <laughs> and I would get complaints from my company manager. So look, you find somebody from the audience saying they can hear rock music. Can you turn your music down? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so, and I used to hashtag that on Twitter called Music of Tonight. So then, it, so then I was letting people know what I was listening to. That was when Twitter was fun and everyone was nice on Twitter. So, 1988, Donaldson was Rock Festival. And this is going to sound a bit odd, but one of the lasting memories I have from that, apart from like the incredible experience of having a dirty burger from a van, pouring with rain, being up to your waist in mud, seeing these incredible rock bands, um, was getting pissed on. <laughs> so I'm standing there, right, and all squashed in, 100,000 people, with one of my best mates, Matthew Town, who's a huge Kiss fan. Um, and uh, we're standing, and I said, like, what the hell is that? I could feel something on the back of my leg, like warm liquid. And I turned around, and there was this drunk skinhead just pissing on me. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? And, and there's nothing I could do about it. I just had to let it dry and stand there. That's why I couldn't change my trousers. I was in the middle of a muddy field with 100,000 people. So I had to just let the guy piss on me. I couldn't start a fight or anything like that. I mean, what was the point? I'm like, oh, fair enough. And then, and then I started to notice people like would just 
they'd have a water bottle or a beer glass and they'd piss in their glass and then they'd just throw it over the crowd. Yeah. So you'd end up, you finish the day covered in shit and piss and mud. <laughs> and it's like one of the seminal moments of my life. <laughs> so it's so bonkers. And because when Kiss were on stage, I mean, the, the stage, to be seen by the audience at the back of the, the, the arena, it has to be like 30 feet high, the stage, right? But it's a challenge for people in the front row to throw things, right? And so, you know, you'd often see, you know, you'd look down at the band playing and then you'd see these cups of piss and bags of shit flying over the <laughs> like that. People go, oh, Christ, what's that? Hitting someone on the head and getting covered in turd. And then you'd see people trying to th- fling things onto the stage. It like became a game, you know, if the mm. band were boring. And I swear this is no lie, but somebody, when Kiss were on stage through a whole ham. <laughs> a whole ham. Like, and, I, like, as a butcher, I was like, that's, that's a cooked ham. And my mate Matthew was like, it can't be. Yeah, somebody's thrown a full joint of ham on the stage at Kiss. It's like, <laughs> as a yeah, present. Yeah, I, took, I got, I mean, first day, they had to carry it into the arena and they had to hold it to, like, six o'clock at night before Kiss were on. And then they threw it 30 feet in the air and it landed on the stage. And I'm, as an ex-butcher, thinking, what a bloody waste of ham. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, um, yeah that, that was an incredible weekend, actually. It sounds yeah. like a weekend I would loathe. <laughs> well, I've gone right off that kind of thing now, you know. As I've got older, going outdoor gigs is just not my thing. No. The, the last one I did was 1997. And my wife and I were standing there going, nah, not doing this anymore. Hard enough. Mm. Cold, wet. Yeah. You're bad back from standing up all day. Oh, dear, never mind. But when you're 16 and you're with your mates, it is the best thing. It's such fun. Mm. It really is. So, yeah. Were you a rock fan because you could sing it or did you learn to sing because you were a rock fan? I think it was a mixture of the two. I mean, what I loved was the the sheer escapism of it. I mean, the noise and the fact that it was extreme and uh, it took you away from your day. You know, and another thing I used to do when I would finish a show, uh, um, like if I was doing Lloyd Webber or Sondheim or whatever musical theatre show I was doing, at the end of the night I would clean my brain by listening to heavy metal. Mm. So it's like I want to get rid of all those kind of, you know, lovely melodies now and, and just listen to something that's dynamic, exciting and ridiculously over the top. And that's what I used to do. Uh, I still do it. So are yeah. your kids fans of, uh, of this Well, stuff yeah, now? they are. I mean, I've, I've made them go to gigs with me. So we've seen Kiss... And we've seen Iron Maiden, um, and my son and I went to see Metallica, and I've got this lovely little video of him uh, headbanging. So I was like so <laughs> proud. Um, and uh, but he's got really long hair because his hair's down the middle of his back. And when I was his age, I used to have the same. So right up until I was about twenty, I had long hair that was like practically down to my ass, you know. And uh, I, I went to drama school, and they were like, "You're gonna have to cut that." I'm like, no chance, no way, uh-uh, I'm not cutting this. Well, you're gonna have to cut it if you want to be an actor. You're gonna have to cut your hair. You know, you're going to have to do all sorts of things. It's like, not not cutting it. And in the end, I cut my hair uh, when I was in All My Sons. I was playing, was that Biff? And the director was insistent I cut my hair because he was supposed to be like this jock, isn't he? This kind of like sports guy. And I had this really long hippie, you know, no fringe, just like let it down. I looked like a goth, you know. But um, <laughs> So eventually I cut it off. My parents hated my hair. They hated it. Um, so... I, when I cut it off, I said to the guy, can you put it into a ponytail and just snip the ponytail off and then cut it after that? And he went, yeah, all right then. And um, so I kept this ponytail and I gave it to my parents as a Christmas present one year. So they <laughs> they came up to visit me in, in London and I'd had my hair cut and I answered the door 
with my hair in a towel. So um, they had no idea. So they just thought I'd wash my hair. So then I brought them upstairs to the flat and then I just nonchalantly took the towel off and they're, they're just like, what, what, have you, you, have you, oh my God, oh my God. They were so happy. They were so happy. And then that Christmas, I gave them the ponytail in a box, and they've still got it. Oh, lovely. So if anybody wants to uh, use any of my genetic material to rob a bank, then go to my parents' house, because there's a huge lock of my hair <laughs> in the garage. So, yeah, so my kids, like, as you said, you know, they, they like the music. My son really likes it now. And um, But, he, I mean, they've both got really diverse musical tastes, and... I'm very pleased with that because, mm. I mean, life's all about trying everything, I think. And um, one of the things I taught them when they were kids was to, like, if you don't like the food, fine, but you have to try the food to tell them you don't like it. So they now eat everything. You know, I went to I went to, to the shop yesterday to pick up a few bits and my daughter was like, oh, can you get me some broccoli? My daughter. Lovely. You know, a teenager. Wow. And uh, my son was like, can you get me some Oreo cookies? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I haven't quite got it to him yet. But um, so they, they eat everything. They eat sushi and stuff, but only because I was insistent they tried it. Yeah. And I'm like that with music and everything. But um, yeah, so I remember taking my kids, coming back to the 1988 Donington Monsters Rock Festival. Um, that show, that particular show that Iron Maiden did, they change it every album. So every tour, they do a different kind of show that reflects the album artwork. And uh, they've never done anything as good as that, I don't think. The 1988 show was massive. Icebergs and, you know, giant inflatables and explosions and all that kind of stuff. And then they announced they were retouring that version of the show a few years ago. And I said, well, we've got to go. We've got, I've got to take my kids. So I sat there reliving my 16-year-old uh, self while sitting there with my wife and children who were just sitting there nonplussed going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> my kids are like, there's no story. It's like, no, there's no story. It's just rock music. It's just, they're playing songs and they're sets and explosions. <laughs> what, why? <laughs> I don't know, but isn't it good? Don't know. <laughs> but they were, my kids are more entertained by the drunk heavy metal fans, yeah. headbanging, topless. I had an allotment for many years. And when I first got it... rock and roll. Yeah, I, that's me. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> <And> <laughs> there was a man who had an allotment next to me. And he spent the whole time hoeing, but with a phone stuck in his ear and shoulder, going, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll get a bigger one. Yeah, we'll get two then. Or, Look, I can't be bothered with it now. Just, just sort it out. All right, speak to you later. And he'd have conversations like that constantly. And right. To begin with, it annoyed me. And then I thought, he's organising something. So I said to him, well, hi, Dick, all right. He went, oh, Mike. I said, well, what, what are you doing? He said, I'll just get stuff ready for the tour. And I said, oh, right. I said, you, you work in um, in the theatre, do you? Because I'm, I'm an actor. And he went, oh, yeah? Oh, no, I don't do theatre. No, no, it's sort of music, really. And I went, OK. So what do you do? He said, I'm a tour manager for Iron Maiden. What? Di well, really? He was the tour manager for Iron Maiden. Because yeah. when you said the name Dick, I thought that that's Iron Maiden's tour manager's called Dick. That's who it was. Holy crap. Mm. The connection, that's incredible. I know. I should go and talk about all this, and then you—that's incredible, mm. incredible. And of course, they just fly around the world on one plane. Yes, but and he's got, and they've got a pilot. Yeah, well, Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They—I mean, I met him very briefly once. He's one of my heroes. One of the the reasons I'm a singer. There's a few people, uh, but he's one of them. Um, you know, listening to my maiden when I was 16 and, and copying Bruce, and it kind of helped me push my range higher than it naturally is, and. Um, I met him very briefly once and I, I wish I hadn't because um, he, he was one of those people that um, 
I mean, obviously he's got a million things going on and it was a signing, you know, it was an HMV and uh, he was just signing and ignoring us, you know, and I thought, oh, just, just a, a smile. Just a hello, mate. Oh, thanks. Nothing. So whenever I do that kind of thing now myself, and I do it a lot, especially when I go to Japan, is I'm, I try to take the time with the fans, you know, mm. because they... and you can get quite a lot back doing that. I think oh, I've done it. Yeah, and people then come up and say, "Oh, look, I've got a letter that so and so that you wrote to me in yeah. 1983." And it, it's enormously satisfying having things like that come full circle. You mm. know? Um, but I guess someone like Bruce Dickinson, you know, he's been doing it for 25 years, millions of people. It becomes a machine to him, you know. And they must be exhausting. Yes. But I just wanted that lit, that one glance of recognition mm. to say thank you. And I didn't get it. So I kind of like, I've decided not to meet my uh, my idols anymore. No. Yourself accepted, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, let's put, oh, let's put Castle Donington. Castle Donington, Monsters of Rock, 1988. Iron Maiden headlining. That goes into your time capsule. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Okay. So what have we got so far? We've got sawdust, mm-hmm. my wife crying, yeah. and heavy metal. <laughs> this is a place you may not want to visit again. Yeah. <laughs> no, these are all great. So you've got one good thing and one bad thing left. Um, yeah, now the bad thing is related to the sawdust. But, and the, and, but, you know, growing up working in a butcher shop and working in the food industry... And seeing the effort that goes into the back end of it, you know, basically my, you know, I used to go to the, the slaughterhouses and uh, see that what had to be done to animals to create, you know, the incredible meal you have at the end of it um, has given me a huge um, respect for the provenance of meat and how to look after it. And, and I hate to see anything wasted, but I also like to see incredibly good meals created beautifully by artists. You know, um, I'm a big fan of uh, food. Because it's, I mean, I love art. I mean, I love modern art particularly. And uh, in fact, one of the things I would have put in if I'd thought about it earlier <laughs> would be my favourite piece of art, uh, which is when I tell people what it is, they're like, what? Uh, it's IKB 79 by an artist called Eve Klein, who created his own colour blue. Uh, and it's just a blue canvas. Mm. And it's hung at the Tate Modern. And it's hung so badly at the Tate Modern. It made me angry the last time I went in there. Because it's the, it, it demands bright light. Because it's this, this potent, deep, electrifyingly exciting blue. It's so weird. But when I saw it, it took my breath away. And they've moved it somewhere else now, so it's got a slightly yellowy light in it. I'm like, what are they doing? And they're trying to protect it or something. But you, you can't appreciate it. So people just walking past this masterpiece, which is literally just somebody's painted blue. Anyway, that would have gone in IKB seventy nine. It's just one of those things that you know. It, it, heals my soul when I look mm. at it. And the same thing is what, what food does, really good food. So my next item will be uh, a meal that um, I hate to say uh, this person's name because it's kind of obvious, but it's Heston Blumenthal. Now, I'm a big foodie, right? I love good food. I love good restaurants. Um, but he elevated it. When I went with my wife years ago, we went to the Fat Duck, his restaurant in Bray. In a Michelin-style restaurant, you expect really good quality food, great service, that kind of thing. But Heston Blumenthal elevated it beyond that into theatre. Now, as I said, I love the fact... I mean, I know where my meat's come from. When I buy and cook meat at home, I know where it's come from. I know to know I'm looking after it and, and serving it well. I hate to see, you know, overcooked steak. Like, oh, my mother, God bless her. Wife of a butcher, right? She's been married to my father for, oh, I don't even know, I mean, 50 years. And um, she can't cook steak. 
and she'd hate me saying this, but she cooks it the way she likes it. So everyone else has to have it that way. And I remember going home once and, uh, you know, my dad's like a fillet steak for lunch every day because he's a butcher. He can have whatever he wants, right? Yeah. <laughs> fillet steak for lunch. So I grew up eating steak for lunch, right? And it was always like rubber, Wellington boots, very well seasoned, God bless her, lots of salt in Welsh cooking. Um, but it was always tough. And I always thought that's the way steak was until I went to New York and I had steak there. And I was like, oh my God. Mm. And then I learned how to cook steak. And then I went back to Wales and I cooked steak for my dad and my brother. And they sat there eating this steak. It's a little technique called the reverse sear. So I cooked this steak for my brother and my father. And they were like, to my mother, why can't you cook like this? <laughs> she was furious. I bet she was. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and she's a, she's a great cook. She's, you know, she's really good, you know, home cook, great apple tarts and roast dinners, that kind of thing. You know, I mean, we went there for a roast dinner recently and there was something like 15 vegetables on the plate, yeah. you know, um, plus overcooked beef. But um, but she wouldn't cook lamb right through, would she? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's from that old school, like cabbage. If it's not like grey, it's not cooked. Yeah. You know. Anyway, to get back to Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck, three Michelin star restaurants. What they do there is like, it's not just about what you're eating, it's about the whole experience. There was, the first thing they bring out is, um, it's obviously changed, it was like a green tea mousse and, um, you know, they sprinkle matcha on it and then it's just a little amuse-bouche, you know, which is a, a phrase I learned the first time I went into a Michelin star restaurant. I'm going, what the hell, an amuse-bouche? What did he say? <laughs> um, and um, they sprinkle, and then they have this little um, mist sprayer and they, they spray in the air around you the scent of green tea. So it's not just having the thing in your mouth, it's experiencing all your senses. Mm. So, um, But that wasn't quite far enough for Heston. I mean, the, some of the food was exquisite. Snail porridge, which people have talked about, divine. Really? Divine. Um, you know, and snails are an odd thing, aren't they? But then it's no worse than eating an egg out of a chicken's bum, is it? Not really. When you really think about it, like frog's legs, ugh. Snails, uh, but yeah, but you've just eaten an egg. Uh, you, not just that, you cracked it open, looked at it, and think I'll, I'll eat that. An egg is pretty disgusting. An embryo, but yeah, but it Almost. is like the finest food ever invented. Yes. So that was the first experience of it. It's like a, like a gentle introduction to how they do things at the Fat Duck, uh, and then course after course came, and um, one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten was um, poached salmon with licorice skin over the top. And a vanilla sauce. I mean, it's like, what on earth were they thinking? It was just disgusting. <laughs> disgusting. <Fish> yeah. <laughs> and it was just like course number four or something, you know. And, like, and there's still another eight courses to go. And you're like, oh, my God. I hope it's not all going to be like that. And then they bring out the snow porridge and go, oh, my God, right, I get this. And then, I mean, the desserts are amazing. The bacon and egg ice cream, incredible. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's become ridiculously expensive, almost prohibitively so to go there now. And we, we got in early. But the thing that blew my mind uh, was something called the Sounds of the Sea, which is a perfect marriage of, of theatre and good food for me. So it comes out this like tranche, comes out this kind of square tray with like it's like a wooden tranche, and on top was glass, like a rectangle, and underneath the glass was sand and kind of little seashells, right? So you knew you didn't eat that, but on top of that was what looked like more sand, but was kind of like some kind of grain. I can't remember what it was. And, and each little island of this, this sand was like, there was an oyster and uh, a cockle, um, a bit of abalone. Uh, having been to Japan and eaten it in Japan, where they eat it, uh, it's like the whole thing. 
I mean, you know, like it's, it's supposed to be nice, delicate slices in French cooking. But in Japan, they just get the whole thing, slice it up and you have it all. It's like chewing a tire. <laughs> but you have to pretend that it's really lovely because you're being it's hosted by Japanese people who will look very polite. Anyway, this um, abalone and all this stuff in there. And you think, oh, this is nice. And then a guy comes with an iPod and a conch shell. And the iPod's in the conch shell and you, you, you pull these headphones out, you stick them in. And it's the sounds of the seaside. You can have birds singing and the waves crashing on the shore. And then so you get the sight of all the food and the beach on your plate. Then you get the sound of it in your ears. And then they spray salt water in the air as you smell it. So all your senses are excited. It's incredible. And it's something like, I can't remember what it tasted like. I just remember the experience of it, you know? Yeah. And that's... That's like what you want. It's like all my favourite things in one go. If they started playing Iron Maiden halfway through it, I would have been really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I might have broken into song. I mean, who knows? But um, yeah, but that, that's, um, you know, knowing that that food had been looked after and then it was created with such care to, to present me with an experience. That's food as art. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about really good quality restaurants. That's what would be impressed that you've chosen it to go into your time capsule. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he'd be proud. I wonder what he would have on this. I mean, because he... Well, I think he'd have your steak. <laughs> reverse seer. <laughs> yeah, the reverse seer. Brilliant. What a great invention that is. Mm. Yeah. We're going to put that into the time capsule. That's... that's. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm envious, actually. I've never mm. been to the, the fact that... Well, you should go. It's an experience. And I, I should imagine it's only better than it used to be now. Mm. You know, cause, Better be, because it's more expensive. It is much more expensive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and the, the joy of going to these places is um, my wife and I never order the same thing wherever we go. We always order something different. Even if we both want the rabbit or we both want the lamb, one of us has to have something different. Yeah. So invariably, one of us has a lesser experience than the other. But so, you always um, get to taste the other person. Yes, you do. Yes. But then you get food envy. So it's, uh, you know, but at least you're getting value for money. That's fantastic. We've got four things, so let's move on to your last yeah. item. Now, this is butcher-related and it's food-related again mm-hmm. because really, you know, growing up in my dad's shop, you know, it was that's all it was. The whole world was the butcher shop. All our family worked there. You know, my grandfather, my grandmother, we all kind of chipped in and stuff. And um, But Christmas was always the busiest time. And, uh, I mean, ridiculous, so ridiculous. I mean... We was working up to like five o'clock on Christmas Eve and you would work every day for two weeks, you know, getting stuff ready because so many orders came in. So, you know, my dad, I mean, some years he'd order like three or 400 turkeys in and now he's ordering like 20, you know, and uh, people just don't go to the butcher shops like they used to. And certainly not in a small town in Wales like where I'm from where there's not really that much money and there's, you know, mm. almost on the poverty breadline kind of thing. So anyway, we're in the good years in the 80s and early 90s, they, uh, there was loads of turkeys were ordered. So my dad's shop has these two huge walk-in fridges, right? I mean, they're the size of most people's living rooms. There's a huge freezer and a huge fridge. And in the fridge, we'd have to store all the turkeys, right? So they'd come in like two weeks before Christmas, and then we'd have to keep them in, the, and we'd have to gut them, and then stack them and, and weigh them and label them and everything. And it took forever. And it was horrible, freezing cold work. I used to have to, because we basically had to build wooden shelves in the in this fridge, in this massive walk-in fridge. And I was the one that had to wriggle on my tummy. All the big 30-pounders were at the bottom. And they'd have to be stacked carefully so they didn't bruise. And I had to wriggle on my tummy in this freezing cold fridge to get these things from the back of the fridge. <laughs> and, um, you know, but that, that was, that, this is what I want to put in. It was 
the Christmas turkey fest in my dad's butcher shop mm. when I was growing up and working there. And the worst thing, absolutely the worst thing, was having to gut the turkeys and stick your hand up their bum. And it was freezing cold because they had to be kept cold. So it was out in the back room, middle of winter. You know, you had to get your hands wet to do it and stick your hand up the bum and scoop your hand around the inside of the guts and pull them out in one piece. And if it burst, God help you. Oh, God. Because then you had to clean the whole thing and it just went on and on and on. It's a horrible experience. But I didn't mind a lot of the other jobs, like making sausages and faggots, which for American listeners are meatballs. Um, and uh, <laughs> I remember actually I was out in New York doing Les Mis. Um, so every time we went on holiday as a family when I was younger, my dad would have to go to the local village and find the nearest butcher shop and compare prices. Right? It was like an addiction. So um, wherever we went, anywhere in the world, Malta, Florida, right? <laughs> like, what's, going, what's, the, what's the difference? Eh? <laughs> so they came to New York to see me do Les Mis on Broadway. First time I'd ever been there. And uh, first time they'd ever been there as well. And uh, they uh, happened to coincide the trip with a strike. All the stagehands and backstage crew all went on strike all over Broadway. So no shows were running. So Because we all had to go out in solidarity because the unions are so powerful over there. So there was a two and a half weeks, a three week period where I didn't get paid, but I was there. I was getting paid to live there, but I wasn't getting paid for work. My parents happened to come that time. It's all pre-booked, of course. So we they get there and I will the strike's on. You can't, you know, you're not going to see your son perform on Broadway. <laughs> you know, you're not going to see that. And my dad's like, ah, oh, I don't care. I bloody hate that show. <laughs> Sick of it. I've seen it loads of times. <laughs> right. Come on, let's go and find a butcher shop and see the price of faggots. <laughs> and I said, dad, that's something totally different you mate. We do not want to go downtown and ask how much are faggots. <laughs> right. So... So I talked him out of it. But on the same trip, right, I sent my mother and father to this um, really nice steak restaurant called Porterhouse uh, on Columbus Circle, which is overlooking it's the corner of the, the Time Warner Centre, overlooking Central Park, the corner, and this lovely little restaurant, beautiful view, Porterhouse. Go there, get the steak, you'll have a lovely time. So I sent them there, and then they came back. And uh, so how was it, ma'am? Oh, it was lovely. The steak was lovely. Oh, lovely. But... I asked for steak and chips. And when they brought me the meal, they brought me crisps. <laughs> Bless her. I'm like, you do realise what you've done there, don't you? She said, what do you mean? Well, the crisps are called chips in America. So they would have said French fries. Oh, you asked me if I wanted fries. And you said, <laughs> I said, yes, chips. And he said, you mean fries? And no, I said chips. So then she had this $40 steak with some crisps <laughs> on the seat. You probably have to rush around to the local yeah. shop. Yeah, hilarious. And he's like, what the hell? Oh, these Brits, God damn, they're crazy. $40 steak and crisps. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So that's what I want to put in anyway. So, I mean, there's been a lot of food stuff in this, but uh, but the worst bit was turkeys at Christmas time. Horrible. Oh. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. No. And I've got some really massive enemies. <laughs> Oh, John. That's, that's musical theatre for you. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're going to put them in there. In go all the turkey. Come on in. I mean, yeah. I'm doing it before they're dead. Come yeah. on. In you go. In you go. And also, so, to add on to that, the worst thing about it was all the good ones would go and we'd get the worst one that was left that nobody wanted. For so Christmas. Christmas time, we'd have like a, an £11 scrawny <laughs> pullet, you know, 
And so then we'd have a massive joint of pork on the side and yeah. overcooked. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, it's been brilliant talking to you about uh, the things you want to put in your time capsule. It's well, been really you. entertaining. Thanks for asking me. It's been a pleasure. And as I said at the beginning, I really didn't know what I was going to put in it. I know. And yeah. Look at that. Look what we ended up with. <laughs> I'm now going to go to Donington and get covered in piss. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, Thanks, pissing on your leg. <laughs> you get that any day you like in Croydon yeah or in musicals <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me Mike Fenton Stevens and my marvellous guest John Owen Jones sadly we didn't hear him sing in this recording which is well it's a bit of an oversight so if I were you I'd look him up on YouTube now and then treat yourself to his latest album You'll find a link to it in the blurb that goes with this episode. If you'd like to hear more episodes of My Time Capsule, you can subscribe on Acast, CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me and My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Right, I'm off to sweep the chimney. Then I'm going to call Eston Blumenthal. Ha <laughs> ha! Easy money! Yes! Bye! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.